Section nine of the world as will and idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Mary Schneider. The world as will and idea. Volume one by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. First book. Section nine all these discussions of the advantages and disadvantages of the application of reason are intended to show that although abstract rational knowledge is the reflex of ideas of perception and is founded on them it is by no means in such entire congruity with them as it could everywhere take their place indeed it never corresponds to them quite accurately and thus as we have seen many human actions can only be performed by the help of reason and deliberation and yet there are some which are better performed without its assistance this very incongruity of sensuous and abstract knowledge on account of which the latter always merely approximates to the former as mosaic approximates to painting is the cause of a very remarkable phenomenon which like reason itself is peculiar to human nature and of which the explanations that have ever anew been attempted are insufficient i mean laughter on account of the source of this phenomenon we cannot avoid giving the explanation of it here though it again interrupts the course of our work to do so the cause of laughter in every case is simply the sudden perception of the incongruity between a concept and the real objects which have been thought through it in some relation and laughter itself is just the expression of this incongruity it often occurs in this way two or more real objects are thought through one concept and the identity of the concept is transferred to the objects it then becomes strikingly apparent from the entire difference of the objects in other respects that the concept was only applicable to them from a one-sided point of view it occurs just as often however that the incongruity between a single real object and the concept under which from one point of view it has rightly been subsumed is suddenly felt now the more correct the subsumption of such objects under a concept may be from one point of view and the greater and more glaring their incongruity with it from another point of view the greater is the ludicrous effect which is produced by this contrast all laughter then is occasioned by a paradox and therefore by unexpected subsumption whether this is expressed in words or in actions this briefly stated is the true explanation of the ludicrous i shall not pause here to relate anecdotes as examples to illustrate my theory for it is so simple and comprehensible that it does not require them and everything ludicrous which the reader may remember is equally valuable as proof of it but the theory is confirmed and illustrated by distinguishing two species into which the ludicrous is divided and which result from the theory either we have previously known two or more very different real objects ideas of sense perception and have intentionally identified them through the unity of a concept which comprehends them both this species of ludicrous is called wit 
or conversely the concept is first present in knowledge and we pass from it to reality and to operation upon it to action objects which in other respects are fundamentally different but which are all thought in that one concept are now regarded and treated in the same way till to the surprise and astonishment of the person acting the great difference of their other aspects appears this species of ludicrous is called folly therefore everything ludicrous is either a flash of wit or a foolish action according as the procedure has been from the discrepancy of the objects to the identity of the concept or the converse the former always intentional the latter always unintentional and from without to seem to reverse the starting point and to conceal wit with the mask of folly is the art of the jester and the clown being quite aware of the diversity of the objects the jester unites them with secret wit under one concept and then starting from this concept he receives from the subsequently discovered diversity of the objects the surprise which he himself prepared it follows from this short but sufficient theory of the ludicrous that if we set aside the last case that of the jester wit must always show itself in words folly generally in actions though also in words when it only expresses an intention and does not actually carry it out or when it shows itself merely in judgments and opinions pedantry is a form of folly it arises in this way a man lacks confidence in his own understanding and therefore does not wish to trust to it to recognize what is right directly in the particular case he therefore puts it entirely under the control of the reason and seeks to be guided by reason in everything that is to say he tries always to proceed from general concept rules and maxims and to confine himself strictly to them in life in art and even in moral conduct hence that clinging to the form to the manner to the expression and word which is characteristic of pedantry and which with it takes the place of the real nature of the matter the incongruity then between the concept and the reality soon shows itself here and it becomes evident that the former never condescends to the particular case and that with its generality and rigid definiteness it can never accurately apply to the fine distinctions of difference and innumerable modifications of the actual therefore the pedant with his general maxims almost always misses the mark in life shows himself to be foolish awkward useless in art in which the concept is unfruitful he produces lifeless stiff abortive mannerisms even with regard to ethics the purpose to act rightly or nobly cannot always be carried out in accordance with abstract maxims for in many cases the excessively nice distinctions in the nature of the circumstances necessitate a choice of the right proceeding directly from the character for the application of mere abstract maxims sometimes gives false results because the maxims only half apply and sometimes cannot be carried out because they are foreign to the individual character of the actor and this never allows itself to be entirely discovered therefore inconsistencies arise 
since then kant makes it a condition of the moral worth of an action that it shall proceed from pure rational abstract maxims without any inclination or momentary emotion we cannot entirely absolve him from the reproach of encouraging moral pedantry this reproach is the significance of schiller's epigram entitled scruples of conscience when we speak especially in connection with politics of doctrinaires theorists savants and so forth we mean pedants that is persons who know the things well in the abstract but not in the concrete abstraction consists in thinking away the less general predicates but it is precisely upon these that so much depends in practice to complete our theory it remains for us to mention a spurious kind of wit the play upon words the kalemburg the pun to which may be added the equivocation the double entendre the chief use of which is the expression of what is obscene just as the witticism brings two very different real objects under one concept the pun brings two different concepts by the assistance of accident under one word the same contrast appears only familiar and more superficial because it does not spring from the nature of things but merely from the accident of nomenclature in the case of the witticism the identity is in the concept the difference in the reality but in the case of the pun the difference is in the concepts and the identity in the reality for the terminology is here the reality it would only be a somewhat far-fetched comparison if we were to say that the pun is related to witticism as the parabola of the upper inverted cone to that of the lower the misunderstanding of the word or the quid pro quo is the unintentional pun and is related to it exactly as folly is to wit thus the deaf man often affords occasion for laughter just as much as the fool and inferior writers of comedy often use the former for the latter to raise a laugh i have treated laughter here only from the psychical side with regard to the physical side i refer to what is said on the subject on the Perarga, volume two chapter six paragraph ninety eight by means of these various discussions it is hoped that both the difference and the relation between the process of knowledge that belongs to the reason rational knowledge the concept on the one hand and the direct knowledge in purely sensuous mathematical intuition or perception and apprehension by the understanding on the other hand has been clearly brought out this remarkable relation of our kinds of knowledge led us almost inevitably to give in passing explanations of feeling and of laughter but from all this we now turn back to the further consideration of science as the third great benefit which reason confers on man the other two being speech and deliberate action the general discussion of science which now devolves upon us will be concerned partly with its form partly with the foundation of its judgments and lastly with its content we have seen that with the exception of the basis of pure logic rational knowledge in general has not its source in the reason itself 
but having been otherwise obtained as knowledge of perception it is stored up in the reason for through reason it has entirely changed its character and has become abstract knowledge all rational knowledge that is knowledge that has been raised to consciousness in the abstract is related to science strictly so called as a fragment to the whole every one has gained a rational knowledge of many different things through experience through consideration of the individual objects presented to him but only he who sets himself the task of acquiring a complete knowledge in the abstract of a particular class of objects strives after science this class can only be marked off by means of concept therefore at the beginning of every science there stands a concept and by means of it the class of objects concerning which this science promises a complete knowledge in the abstract is separated in thought from the whole world of things for example the concept of space relations or of the action of unorganized bodies upon each other or of the nature of plants or of animals or of the successive changes of the surface of the globe or of the changes of the human race as a whole or of the construction of a language and so forth if science sought to obtain the knowledge of its object by investigating each individual thing that is thought through the concept till by degrees it had learned the whole no human memory would be equal to the task and no certainty of completeness would be obtainable therefore it makes use of that property of concept spheres explained above that they include each other and it concerns itself mainly with the wider spheres which lie within the concept of its object in general when the relations of these spheres to each other have been determined all that is thought in them is also generally determined and can now be more and more accurately determined by the separation of smaller and smaller concept spheres in this way it is possible for a science to comprehend its object completely this path which it follows to knowledge the path from the general to the particular distinguishes it from ordinary rational knowledge therefore systematic form is an essential and characteristic feature of science the combination of the most general concept spheres of every science that is the knowledge of its first principles is the indispensable condition of mastering it how far we advance from these to the more special propositions is a matter of choice and does not increase the thoroughness but only the extent of our knowledge of the science the number of the first principles to which all the rest are subordinated varies greatly in the different sciences so that in some there is more subordination in others more coordination and in this respect the former makes greater claims upon the judgment the latter upon the memory it was known to the schoolmen that as the syllogism requires two premises no science can proceed from a single first principle which cannot be the subject of further deduction but must have several at least two the specially classifying sciences zoology botany and also physics and chemistry inasmuch as they refer all inorganic action to a few fundamental forces 
have most subordination history on the other hand has really none at all for the general in it consists merely in the survey of the principal periods from which however the particular events cannot be deduced and are only subordinated to them according to time but according to the concept are coordinate with them therefore history strictly speaking is certainly rational knowledge but it is not science in mathematics according to euclid's treatment the axioms alone are indemonstrable first principles and all demonstrations are in gradation strictly subordinated to them but this method of treatment is not essential to mathematics and in fact each proposition introduces quite a new space construction which in itself is independent of those which precede it and indeed can be completely comprehended from itself quite independently of them in the pure intuition of perception of space in which the most complicated construction is just as directly evident as the axiom but of this more fully hereafter meanwhile every mathematical proposition remains always a universal truth which is valid for innumerable particular cases and a graduated process from the simple to the complicated propositions which are to be deduced from them is also essential to mathematics therefore in every respect mathematics is a science the completeness of a science as such that is in respect of form consists in there being as much subordination and as little coordination of the principles as possible scientific talent in general is therefore the faculty of subordinating the concept spheres according to their different determinations so that as plato repeatedly counsels a science shall not be constituted by a general concept and an indefinite multiplicity immediately under it but that knowledge shall descend by degrees from the general to the particular through intermediate concepts and divisions according to closer and closer definitions in kantian language this is called satisfying equally the law of homogeneity and that of specification it arises from this peculiar nature of scientific completeness that the aim of science is not greater certainty for certainty may be possessed in just as high a degree by the most disconnected particular knowledge but its aim is rather the facilitating of rational knowledge by means of its form and the possibility of the completeness of rational knowledge which this form affords it is therefore very prevalent but perverted opinion that the scientific character of knowledge consists in its greater certainty and just as false is the conclusion following from this that strictly speaking the only sciences are mathematics and logic because only in them on account of their purely a priori character is their unassailable certainty of knowledge this advantage cannot be denied them but it gives them no special claim to be regarded as sciences for the special characteristic of science does not lie in certainty but in the systematic form of knowledge based on the gradual descent from the general to the particular the process of knowledge from the general to the particular which is peculiar to the sciences 
involves the necessity that in the sciences much should be established by deduction from preceding propositions that is to say by demonstration and this has given rise to the old mistake that only what has been demonstrated is absolutely true and that every truth requires a demonstration whereas on the contrary every demonstration requires an undemonstrated truth which ultimately supports it or it may be its own demonstration therefore a directly established truth is as much to be preferred to a truth established by demonstration as water from the spring is to water from the aqueduct perception partly pure a priori as it forms the basis of mathematics partly empirical a posteriori as it forms the basis of all the other sciences is the source of all truth and the foundation of all science logic alone is to be accepted which is not found upon perception but yet upon direct knowledge by the reason of its own laws not the demonstrated judgments nor their demonstrations but judgments which are created directly out of perception and founded upon it rather than on any demonstrations are to science what the sun is to the world for all light proceeds from them and lighted by their light the others give light also to establish the truth of such primary judgments directly from perception to raise such strongholds of science from the innumerable multitude of real objects that is the work of the faculty of judgment which consists in the power of rightly and accurately carrying over into abstract consciousness what is known in perception and judgment is consequently the mediator between understanding and reason only extraordinary and exceptional strength of judgment in the individual can actually advance science but everyone who is possessed of a healthy reason is able to deduce propositions from propositions to demonstrate to draw conclusions to lay down and make permanent for reflection in suitable concepts what is known through perception so that on the one hand what is common to many real objects is thought through one concept and on the other hand their points of difference are each thought through one concept so that the different shall be known and thought as different in spite of a partial agreement and the identical shall be known and thought as identical in spite of a partial difference all in accordance with the end and intention which in each case is in view all this is done by the faculty of judgment deficiency in judgment is silliness the silly man fails to grasp now the partial or relative difference of concepts which in one aspect are identical now the identity of concepts which are relatively or partially different to this explanation of the faculty of judgment moreover kant's division of it into reflecting and subsuming judgment may be applied according as it passes from the perceived objects to the concepts or from the latter to the former in both cases always mediating between empirical knowledge of the understanding and the reflective knowledge of the reason there can be no truth which could be brought out by means of syllogisms alone 
and the necessity of establishing truth by means of syllogisms is merely relative indeed subjective since all demonstration is syllogistic in the case of a new truth we must first seek not for demonstration but for direct evidence and only in the absence of such evidence is a demonstration to be temporarily made use of no science is susceptible of demonstration throughout any more than a building can stand in the air all its demonstrations must ultimately rest upon what is perceived and consequently cannot be demonstrated for the whole world of reflection rests upon and is rooted in the world of perception all primal that is original evidence is a perception as the word itself indicates therefore it is either empirical or founded upon the perception a priori of the conditions of possible experience in both cases it affords only immanent not transcendent knowledge every concept has its worth and its existence only in its relation sometimes very indirect to an idea of perception what is true of the concepts is also true of the judgments constructed out of them and of all science therefore it must in some way be possible to know directly without demonstrations or syllogism every truth that is arrived at through syllogisms and communicated by demonstrations this is most difficult in the case of certain complicated mathematical propositions at which we only arrive by chains of syllogisms for example the calculation of the chords and tangents to all arcs by deduction from the proposition of pythagoras but even such a truth as this cannot essentially and solely rest upon abstract principles and the space relations which lie at its foundation also must be capable of being so presented a priori in pure intuition or perception that the truth of their abstract expression is directly established but of mathematical demonstration we shall speak more fully shortly it is true we often hear men speak in a lofty strain of sciences which rest entirely upon correct conclusions drawn from sure premises and which are consequently unassailable but through pure logical reasoning however true the premises may be we shall never receive more than an articulate expression and exposition of what lies already complete in the premises thus we shall only explicitly expound what was already implicitly understood the esteemed sciences referred to are however specially the mathematical sciences particularly astronomy but the certainty of astronomy arises from the fact that it has for its basis the intuition or perception of space which is given a priori and is therefore infallible all space relations however follow from each other with a necessity ground of being which affords a priori certainty and they can therefore be safely deduced from each other to these mathematical properties we have only to add one force of nature gravity which acts precisely in relation to the masses and the square of the distance and lastly the law of inertia which follows from the law of causality and is therefore true a priori and with it the empirical datum of the motion 
impressed once for all upon each of these masses this is the whole material of astronomy which both by its simplicity and its certainty leads to definite results which are highly interesting on account of the vastness and importance of the objects for example if i know the mass of a planet and the distance of its satellite from it i can tell with certainty the period of the revolution of the latter according to kepler's second law but the ground of this law is that with this distance only this velocity will both chain the satellite to the planet and prevent it from falling into it thus it is only upon such a geometrical basis that is by means of an intuition or perception a priori and also upon the application of a law of nature that much can be arrived at by means of syllogisms for here they are merely like bridges from one sensuous apprehension to others but it is not so with mere pure syllogistic reasoning in the exclusively logical method the source of the first fundamental truths of astronomy is however properly induction that is the comprehension of what is given in many perceptions in one true and directly founded judgment from this hypotheses are afterwards constructed and their confirmation by experience as induction approaching to completeness affords the proof of the first judgment for example the apparent motion of the planets is known empirically after many false hypotheses with regard to the spatial connection of this motion planetary course the right one was at last found then the laws which it obeyed the laws of kepler and lastly the cause of these laws universal gravitation and the empirically known agreement of all observed cases with the whole of the hypotheses and with their consequences that is to say induction established them with complete certainty the invention of the hypotheses was the work of the judgment which rightly comprehended the given facts and expressed them accordingly but induction that is a multitude of perceptions confirmed their truth but their truth could also be known directly and by a single empirical perception if we could pass freely through space and had telescopic eyes therefore here also syllogisms are not the essential and only source of knowledge but really only a makeshift as a third example taken from a different sphere we may mention that the so-called metaphysical truths that is such truths as those to which kant assigns the position of the metaphysical first principles of natural science do not owe their evidence to demonstration what is a priori certain we know directly as the form of all knowledge it is known to us with the most complete necessity for example that matter is permanent that is can neither come into being nor pass away we know directly as negative truth for our pure intuition or perception of space and time gives the possibility of motion in the law of causality the understanding affords us the possibility of change of form and quality but we lack powers of the imagination for conceiving the coming into being or passing away of matter therefore that truth has at all times been evident to all men everywhere nor has it ever been seriously doubted 
and this could not be the case if it had no other ground of knowledge than the abstruse and exceedingly subtle proof of kant but besides this i have found kant's proof to be false as is explained in the appendix and have shown above that the permanence of matter is to be deduced not from the share which time has in the possibility of experience but from the share which belongs to space the true foundation of all truths which in this sense are called metaphysical that is abstract expressions of the necessary and universal forms of knowledge cannot itself lie in abstract principles but only in the immediate consciousness of the forms of the idea communicating itself in apodictic assertions a priori and fearing no refutation but if we yet desire to give a proof of them it can only consist in showing that what is to be proved is contained in some truth about which there is no doubt either as a part of it or as a presupposition thus for example i have shown that all empirical perception implies the application of the law of causality the knowledge of which is hence a condition of all experience and therefore cannot be first given and conditioned through experience as hume thought demonstrations in general are not so much for those who wish to learn as for those who wish to dispute such persons stubbornly deny directly established insight now only the truth can be consistent in all directions and therefore we must show such persons that they admit under one form and indirectly what they deny under another form and directly that is the logically necessary connection between what is denied and what is admitted it is also a consequence of the scientific form the subordination of everything particular under a general and so on always to what is more general that the truth of many propositions is only logically proved that is through their dependence upon other propositions through syllogisms which at the same time appear as proofs but we must never forget that this whole form of science is merely a means of rendering knowledge more easy not a means of greater certainty it is easier to discover the nature of an animal by means of the species to which it belongs and so on through the genus family order and class than to examine on every occasion the animal presented to us but the truth of all propositions arrived at syllogistically is always conditioned by and ultimately dependent upon some truth which rests not upon reasoning but upon perception if this perception were always as much within our reach as a deduction through syllogisms then it would be in every respect preferable for every deduction from concepts is exposed to great danger of error on account of the fact we have considered above that so many spheres lie partly within each other and that their content is often vague or uncertain this is illustrated by a multitude of demonstrations of false doctrines or sophisms of every kind syllogisms are indeed perfectly certain as regards form but they are very uncertain on account of their matter the concepts for on the one hand the spheres of these are not sufficiently sharply defined 
and on the other hand they intersect each other in so many ways that one sphere is in part contained in many others and we may pass at will from it to one or another of these and from this sphere again to others as we have already shown or in other words the minor term and also the middle can always be subordinated to different concepts from which we may choose at will the major and the middle and the nature of the conclusion depends on this choice consequently immediate evidence is always much to be preferred to reasoned truth and the latter is only to be accepted when the former is too remote and not when it is as near or indeed nearer than the latter accordingly we saw above that as a matter of fact in the case of logic in which the immediate knowledge of each individual case lies nearer to hand than deduced scientific knowledge we always conduct our thought according to our immediate knowledge of the laws of thought and leave logic unused end of section nine